In Acts 21, the Apostle Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism. A group of Messianic Jews believes that Paul is teaching Jewish Christians in the Diaspora that they no longer need to obey the law of Moses or circumcise their sons. To prove this is a lie and bring unity of the body, Paul joins four men, pays for their Nazarite vow, and purifies himself in the temple. But instead of peace, all hell breaks loose. How many of you have seen the videos of the motorcycle group that gets really angry as a motorist gets furious because they're driving down the road, the motorist is driving, the motorcycle group is all around him and they're yelling and screaming at each other. You can see the anger exploding. Finally, the motorist gets so mad, he drives right over one of the motorcycle guys and seriously injures him. And then the chase ensues. And then how many of you saw the end of the video where they knock the window out, they pull the guy out, and they beat him before his wife and his children? How do you feel about that? How many of you have ever seen mob violence, like over in the Middle East and Egypt, right? Mob violence in Damascus, Syria. Turn on the news today, and I guarantee you, somewhere in the world, there is an angry mob. The motorcycle guys got mad, and the motorists got mad because they were blocking each other in what they were trying to accomplish in getting to their destination. This morning, I want to tell you what makes your blood boil. In fact, I bet you your blood is boiled this week. How many of you have been listening to Fox News and your blood starts to boil? You can't go to sleep because of the attacks against America and the country is going down. See, now I got your attention. Have you listened to any commentators on the Internet or on Fox News from the right that made your blood boil? Okay, that's politics. One of the things that will make your blood boil is politics. So I want you to stay with me today because we're going to learn how politics really powerfully impacted the Apostle Paul's life. The second thing, and I could switch that. Like if you were a different audience today, because you haven't even listened to CNN. And if I had a different political mix here today, then I could say, man, you know, those right-wing, born-again fundamentalists, man, they're taking over America. It's the last gasp of white Caucasian Puritan East Coast Christianity. And man, we can wipe them out because if we don't, we're going to end the United States and the freedom that we know it and all that holds America dear. I could get an audience that was different politically to be ready to kill you. You with me? On both sides of the political spectrum, every one of you, whatever your politics is here today, I can use my rhetoric to really get you mad and to really get you angry. So if you've ever been angry over political issues, and specifically not just politics, but when you feel your nation, does anyone feel that the United States of America is at rest today? Well, you can get really angry. You'll get really furious over that. Some of you have boiled this week over that. So I want you to listen to me today, because we're going to go back from God's holy word. We're going to talk about that. The second thing I want you to know that will really make your blood boil is your religious traditions. Okay? How many of you really enjoyed what you just sang? When I survey the cross, on which, in fact, Isaac Watts originally wrote, on which the young prince of glory died. I kind of like that better. How many of you like that old hymn? How many of you think, man, that's really holy? That's really spiritual. And man, that's what we really need to get back to. I got you? You with me? Do you know that when Isaac Watts wrote that song, 
that the church almost threw him out because it wasn't chants from the Psalms? See, young Isaac Watts went home one day and he said to his dad, you know, Dad, we sing these, these hymns. We've been doing it for hundreds of years. They're, they're Psalms, only the Psalms. And I'd like us to introduce some words that are from my heart. And I'd like to do it in a style that will be really contemporary, that will speak to my audience. And so his father, rather than you know, saying, well, man, you're out of the church. We're not going to get rid of you. This brilliant father said, man, Isaac, write some songs. And the body of Christ has been singing them ever since. But when they introduce, when I survey that wonderful cross on which the young prince of glory died, there were people in the church that were ready to kill Isaac Watts. Now we're ready to kill the young ones that are writing in their styles, right? Anybody ever fought over religious styles, religious words, what we should sing? The reason I'm using that is because that's what gets your blood boiling. That's your religious tradition. One of the things that's really deep inside of me is the way that the Holy Spirit has spoken to me through certain forms. And I get used to that form, and then I think that the form is what makes it really holy. All religions do that. Every religion in the world does that. And Judaism has one of the greatest rights to do that because God actually did appear on Mount Sinai and talk to the Jews about the food that they should eat, the fact that they should circumcise their boys on the eighth day, the fact that they should keep three major festivals throughout the year. The Jews, by the time the first century came, they had become a very powerful religious tradition. Two of the things that will make your blood boil more than anything else are your politics connected with nationalism, especially when you feel your nation is threatened. And second of all, your religious traditions, like Mary and I did a funeral here. We need to really pray for Carol. She's here today with us today, and we lost George earlier this week, and we had his memorial service. Then Mary and I went down to Mahaya. Now, Buddy sang at the funeral service for George, and Jennifer played the piano. And they did Now I Belong to Jesus, which is a beautiful song. It was a great, great service. But when Mary and I went down to Mahaya, they had a piano playing in the beginning of the service, but as soon as the service started and we were into worship, the piano stopped. This wasn't Church of Christ. It was more primitive Baptist. But we sang a cappella. There would be people that would fight and think that what Jennifer did in playing the piano was terrible. It's from hell. It's evil. Because what maintains the pure tradition is not having any instruments. So there's whole denominations, all kinds of churches that have been formed by those kind of cultural religious things, okay? Now, the Apostle Paul, we open up to Acts chapter 21. We're going to begin with verse 17. The Apostle Paul has just arrived in Jerusalem. He's come from his missionary journeys. He's got a big offering he wants to deliver to the Jerusalem church to try to blend the Gentile believers that are not into cultural Judaism with the Jerusalem Judean believers that are really into Judaism. The very first question I want you to ask is, does Jesus and his resurrection and his crucifixion, does it mean that cultural Judaism is over? In other words, if you're Jewish in the first century, now that Jesus has come, should you stop circumcising your boys should you stop eating kosher food? I want you to think about that. The second thing I want you to think of, if you're Gentile, 
in order to get closer to God, would it be better for you to become Jewish culturally and start eating kosher foods and getting your boys circumcised for religious purposes and make them become Jewish and keep Hanukkah and Passover and all those things, would that make you closer to God? All those things, those questions are up for grabs even in our own culture. Let's read how the Apostle Paul interacts with that. Look at verse 17 of chapter 21. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So the Apostle Paul is welcomed by the Jerusalem church. On the following day, Paul got a good rest. And on the next day, he went with us. So Paul's bringing like Luke and Timothy and Trophimus and other believers that came to him from the Gentile mission. Then they go to meet James, and all the elders were present. That's where our church gets the idea. The early church was gathered together. They were organized around a family model. They had father figures that were elders, very much like the Jerusalem group. The Jewish people had elders in their synagogue, and they took the family structure, and then they applied it to their religious structure. So you can see that. This is a little glimpse in the first century church. James is one among equals. He's the Lord's half-brother. And just like in Acts 15, if you're tracking with me through the book of Acts, James is the leader, the one among equals that's heading this group. So after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So the writer, Dr. Luke, has shown us that the Jerusalem church with James as the lead, their rejoicing is what God has done through the Gentiles. So were the Jerusalem Christians really excited about the Gentile mission? Tell me, were they? Yeah. They're rejoicing. In fact, it says that they glorify God. One of the things we want to do is we have people go out on missions. Like when our group goes down to Columbia and they come back, we need to glory in what God has done. That'll really bring joy to your heart as you glorify God in what he is doing. It'll lift you up and encourage you. That's what's happening here. So it says, after reading them, they all rejoiced. They glorify God what he had done in the missionary journey. Then they said to him, now here's the tension in the text. You see, brother, this is probably James speaking. He says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So was the first century church only Gentiles? Almost all your Jewish friends that you're going to meet with in business this week or you travel to the East Coast or the West Coast or you go to North Dallas where there's large Jewish populations, I want you to know that almost all of them don't know this history. One of my objectives is to help you to really find out the truth. The truth of the matter is that Christianity didn't start out as a religion. It wasn't a culture. It was a belief in the reality that Jesus died and rose again. And you could keep whatever culture you want. We have a lot of people in our church involved in missions. One of the great problems in missions is that we go into all the world, and when the British rule the world, they produce little Britishers, little English people that had the cultural traditions of England. Now we go into the world, if you're Southern Baptist, you go into all the world and you produce little Baptists or little Methodists or little Bible churches. The message of Jesus isn't about the traditions that you keep. It's not the buildings you worship. It's not the food you eat. It's not the clothes that you wear. Whatever your belief is, this is a document from the first century. This is what really happened. It's the only first century source we have. And I want you to know that Jesus broke out among Jewish people. And I want you to see that when they trusted Jesus, they became even more passionate about keeping their Jewish commitments. Notice what it says. You see, brother, they are zealous for the law. So when they trusted Jesus, they wanted to obey Moses, what he really said, even more strongly than they did before they came to know Jesus. 
And they have been told, now listen to this. Look, this is where tremendous tension is in the text. They've been told about you, so they've been told about Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. This is the diaspora. There were thousands upon thousands of Jews that lived all over the Roman Empire. There's 600,000 or so, even more, down in Alexandria in Egypt. There's a whole group of Jews living in Babylon. There's a big population of Jews living in Rome. That was called the scattering, the diaspora. And the false rumors come back to the Jerusalem church that Paul is telling all of these diaspora Jews, you're teaching them that they should forsake Moses. They should not listen to Moses' revelation in the Old Testament. Have you ever had someone tell you, you don't need to read the Old Testament? A whole bunch of you have been raised without any Old Testament. That's not good for you. You'll never understand God's redemptive story if you don't have the Jewish Tanakh. That's what they call it. And the false rumor was, Paul said, no, you don't need that anymore. You don't need to read Moses anymore. Also, don't circumcise your boys or don't follow the customs of our elders. What then should be done? I want you to see the power of a false rumor. And I want all of you to ask yourself, one of the things that really concerns me about believers, and the internet has made it really worse, rumors just explode. Rumors have almost destroyed Midlothian Bible Church at times. Can you believe what they did with those finances? Can you believe that they made this decision? Man, it, ex it explodes in the church family. Tremendous anger takes place. Have you ever had that happen in your life? How many of you ever had rumors that almost wiped out your family? How many of you have had rumors that, that wiped out other churches you've been in? This was a rumor. So what do you do? What do you do when you receive information about what someone did, about what is happening? What happened in our culture, you hit the button and send it to a thousand of your friends. Anybody ever done that? Do you know that you're fueling anarchy when you do that? You need to find out what's really happening. Had Paul really taught throughout the diaspora that Jews shouldn't any longer circumcise their kids? Tell me. Had Paul told them that they shouldn't study the law of Moses anymore? How do you know that? Because this is the only way you can't know. you got to read the book of Acts. So if you haven't started reading the book of Acts in the beginning, then you don't know what I'm talking about this morning. That's what I want to whet your appetite to. Don't listen to what I'm saying. you got to start in the beginning of Acts. Luke will give you where Paul speaks to Jewish audiences. And he'll use the law of Moses to point them to Jesus, to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah. So you know from the first century document, not because I told you, but if you track Paul's argument and Luke's argument through Paul in the book of Acts, he tells you that Paul did nothing of the kind. In fact, Timothy's mom was Jewish. Remember that story? Those of you that have been tracking with us, Timothy's mom is Jewish. So culturally, Timothy is what? Jewish. That's still true today. Your Judaism is tracked through your mom, that genealogy. Timothy was Jewish culturally. So guess what? He traveled with Paul, and Paul wanted to be able to have an open door to the gospel. So guess who got circumcised very painfully as a young adult? Titus was Gentile. 
Did Paul have Titus get circumcised? No, Paul wrote the whole book of Galatians about why Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. I want you to begin to understand. You need to see the difference when this is just cultural. This is just about tradition. And traditions aren't bad, always. They're only bad when they fuel anger and make you attack people. What makes you humans is all different kinds of cultures. So it was a lie. The Apostle Paul didn't preach that Jews shouldn't follow the law of Moses, that they should not circumcise their kids. So James had an idea. What shall be done? He says, we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men, purify yourselves along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live observing the law of Moses. But as for the Gentiles who believe, those that are not Jewish, we've already written a letter going back to chapter 15 of the book of Acts. We sent them a letter that all they need to do is not be idolaters. They shouldn't go to idolatrous festivals, and they shouldn't drink blood. They shouldn't deal with animals that have been strangled and still have the blood in them because that is all had to do with idolatrous worship in the first century. And, and then also they shouldn't be immoral. How many of you think that's a pretty good rule for Gentiles to follow? They shouldn't be idolatrous. They shouldn't be immoral. Anybody agree with that today? Say amen. Okay? So what James is saying, we don't want any of the Gentiles to respond to Jesus. They don't have to circumcise their kids. They don't have to be obedient to the festivals of Judaism because we live in a new day. So we can be culturally Jewish if we're Jewish. We can be culturally Gentile if we're Gentile. And the Apostle Paul is told, you see, there's four guys that are going to take a Nazarite vow. This is going back to the book of Numbers. They grow their hair long. Like uh, I just saw Lynn Hobson that grew up in our church. Mary didn't recognize him. He had the big beard because his son is in a, in a program. And he and his son agreed, we're not going to shave until his son comes out of that program. And so his dad and son, they have these big bushy beards, okay? Nazarites, they did that. Only they did it for religious purposes. They did it to set themselves apart and to really spend time in prayer and time of devotion to the Lord. It was a beautiful custom, and they wouldn't come in contact with any dead bodies. You all know this from the story of, of Samson. That was a lifetime Nazarite vow. Now, the idea here is you'd grow your hair out, and you'd go to the temple, and you'd let the priests know, and you'd pay money for the sacrifices that are going to be offered, and then seven days are going to go by, then they're going to shave their head, and when they shave their head, they're going to offer these sacrifices and the vow will be ended. Now, Paul is being accused by the Jerusalem church, and you can bet by all the Jews in Jerusalem that he is a heretic that's speaking against the law of Moses. So if he goes to the temple and he pays the money for these four guys to have their Nazarite vows... And if seven days they fulfill their vow, they all shave their heads, what would it prove to everybody in Jerusalem? By action, it would prove that Paul was still culturally Jewish. As a congregation, listen to me. I would never teach you like this if I wasn't going through the book of Acts. This would never hit my felt need for you guys, ever. So as you think of what you're going to do in the future... I want you to know, I poured my life. I believe this is God's inspired word. And I believe the only way you're going to understand it is you got to read through these books. I don't ask you to agree with what I'm saying today at all, but I got news for you. 
If I wanted to meet your felt needs, I would teach this congregation right-wing politics, and I would combine it with your devotion to Christ, and I can have tons of money flowing in here. We can build big buildings, but it isn't biblical. And when I go to the Czech Republic, that message won't fly. When I go to Argentina next week, that message won't fly. If I go to Korea, that message won't fly. And I want you to know, as your pastor teacher, for 40 years, we've made big decisions not to turn the church into a political machine, but to teach God's holy word. And the only reason I'm speaking to you like I'm speaking today is because I've been studying Acts for hours and hours and hours. And I'm really concerned that in the next generation, no one's going to do that. And you'll never understand. Like, what I'm speaking to now is really hard. It's really hard to understand what's my biblical conviction. Christ died on the cross for my sins. Christ rose again. Christ is coming back. And the difference between those life and death commitments that I join with believers down through the centuries and around the world to separate that from whether I circumcise my kids or whether I eat certain kinds of food or whether or not I have this political persuasion or whether I have this religious tradition. I need to understand. The Apostle Paul understands. Like when I was a kid in a Christian high school, they taught me Paul blew it here. He didn't understand what he was doing. And he compromised himself because he should have never taken the Jewish vow. Some of you have been taught like that. If you've been taught like that, you haven't read the story. Like is Paul in the book of Acts a good guy or a bad guy? Tell me real loud. Do you go good guy or bad guy? Is he someone throughout all the books you should pretty much follow his example after he gets saved? Not before he gets saved. Don't throw believers in jail. But after he gets saved, should you follow his example? See, that's what I want you to learn to track. See, I could twist this story. And I could teach you this morning that Apostle Paul just blew it. That's why he got arrested. That's where everything blew up, because he did the wrong thing. But I'm not listening to Luke. And that's what I covet for you. I'm scared to death. I want to raise up another generation. Very few preachers that I hear today really track the story of the Bible. Some of you have been raised all your life with the Bible, but you're hung up in tradition this morning. You're angry about tradition. You don't understand that it's fine to be circumcised. It's fine to do certain things religiously, but don't, don't make it the center of your faith. Jesus crucified and raised, and at the right hand of God today, he is what our faith is about. Amen? This is serious stuff. So Paul, in this story of Acts, and you can check it out for yourself, according to Luke in the book of Acts, Paul did the right thing. And it's a great plan. The idea is you can tell what people really believe by their actions. So the Apostle Paul goes into the temple, as the next section tells us. He goes into the temple and pays the bill for these guys. He didn't use, by the way, didn't use the Gentile fund. Like some commentators will say that he compromised the Gentile fund. If you read a critic like that, they make Paul the bad guy. If Gentiles gave money to meet poor people that need to be fed in Jerusalem, and he uses it to pay the vow for four guys— I call him a, an imposter. He's a con artist. And that's what I've read this week from some of the commentary in the book of Acts because they don't track the story. They don't believe the story. In this story, Paul's a good guy. He goes to the temple. He pays the money. They make sure all the religious leaders in Jerusalem know what they're doing. Seven days go by. 
Paul goes into the temple, gets his head shaved. The four guys get their head shaved. They burn the hair like they're supposed to. They do all they're supposed to do. And they all lived happily ever after. So if you do the right thing, everyone will be at peace. No. Look what happens. It gets really exciting here. This is unbelievable. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews of Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They laid hands on him. They cried out, men of Israel, this man is the teaching everyone everywhere against the people. He's against the Mosaic law. He's against this holy place. Moreover, I want you to know, he brought Greeks. He brought unclean people, Greeks, into this holy place. Man, what do you think happened? That's a rabble-rouser. That's why he yelled at you. And you're all love. If the rabble-rouser, if you're in a religious place, I can't believe we let kids into this place with shorts into the holy place. What's this thing coming to? See, then it's not so distant anymore. You see, that's how religious tradition, it's really powerful. That's what divides us. If you want to get a crowd stirred up, you yell in a Jewish temple, there were signs. We have Herodian signs that say, Gentile, step beyond this point on penalty of death. Now, I want to ask you again. We had the rumor that Paul taught dispersed Jews not to obey the law of Moses and not to circumcise their kids. Is that true or not? Everybody tell me. Okay. The agent just accused Paul of not obeying the law of Moses. Was that true? They yelled that he had desecrated the temple by bringing Gentiles into the holy place. Was that true? You know what they did? They do what a lot of us do. Some of you have done it this week. You connect the dots wrongly. Dr. Luke tells us they had seen him with some Gentiles for they had, look at verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, who's an Ephesian Gentile, with him in the city. And they, big words, they supposed that Paul had brought him to the temple. They supposed that Paul had brought him to the temple. And as they were seeking, they, they seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. They all ran together. They seized him. They dragged him and were taking him. They're going to kill him. They closed the gates to stop the mob. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, which wasn't totally the truth, just the big crowd in the temple. He had at once took his soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So remember what I started out with? Remember that video of them beating? That's what mobs do. That's where nationalism that's where, when it becomes worship, that's where religious tradition becomes worship. That's when rumors explode, and you end up grabbing an innocent man, and you'll kick him to death. And that's in my heart, and that's in your heart. So Dr. Luke is challenging all of us as he's revealing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what we're supposed to do. Where are you? Are you part of the crowd? What Luke is forcing me to do today, I have to decide. Am I with the Jewish crowd that's yelling, following a rumor, following false stories? Or am I with the apostle that lived for the truth? And I want you to know this is really serious stuff. Because you're going to leave this auditorium and you can become part of the rabble rousers that divide nations, 
that divide companies, that divide churches, that divide families. Some of your families right now have people that won't even come to eat with you, brothers and sisters, children, because of rumors. This is real stuff, my brothers and sisters. Luke knows what he's talking about. Luke is appealing very powerfully to my own heart. Dave, what causes your blood to boil? What causes you to want to kick somebody? And Dr. Luke is saying, listen to the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul does an incredible thing. The Roman soldier grabs him. I'll tell you the story. The Roman, he's a tribune. He's head of a cohort. He has almost 1,000 men, two centurions, and he has cavalry and everything. And he probably doesn't bring the whole cohort down, but I want all of the policemen in our church, he needs to bless. If you see a policeman, say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because policemen will quell riots. Like when a mob is exploding, as a believer, you don't say, well, I'm going to pray. I'm a policeman. I'm going to pray. Dear Lord Jesus, help Paul not to get hurt. No, come in there. If you're in New York City, ride your horses into the mob. If I'm being beat up in New York City, please come with your mounted police and save me. That's what this story is telling. See the balance in the story? And this story, like some of you say, well, the Bible doesn't understand anything about politics. Yeah, it does. It's very realistic. The Roman Tribune plays a good role in this story. But if you'll keep reading the book of Acts, I want to whet your appetite. He's going to stretch the truth later on. Anybody ever had politicians that are playing the game that they stretch the truth? He's going to tell his authorities that he was a Roman citizen. I found out he was a Roman citizen, so I rushed to his aid. He doesn't find out that he's a Roman citizen to after, you know, Paul asked to talk to him. It had nothing to do with why he rushed into the crowd, but he stretches the truth. So don't get discouraged if you're living in a political system that people tell lies to get ahead. The book of Acts will prepare you for that. The apostle Paul experienced all of that. He's going to be in prison for the rest of the book of Acts. But I want you to know the apostle Paul, as he's being hauled up the stairs, he taps the tribune on the shoulder. I made that up. But he said, hey, can I say something? I love Paul. This is awesome. He says personally, and he speaks to the tribune in Greek, which is the language that he would readily understand. And then the tribune says, oh, I thought you were the Egyptian. This is a great story. Remember, because Paul had his head shaved. By the way, Egyptians love to have no hair. Hebrews, some might have big beards, long, scraggly hair, but Egyptians cut off all the hair. Remember the story of Joseph? Okay, so it's a cultural distinction. So here's Paul. He looks like an Egyptian. He's got his head shaved. So the tribune, again, false information. I thought you were a terrorist. So Paul is arrested by the tribune because the tribune thinks he's a terrorist. So Paul says, hey, do you mind? Can I speak? to the crowd. Now, Paul's a little bit nuts, but I want to close this time reminding you, when you're in doubt and when you're under pressure, testify to Jesus. That's what Paul wants to teach you. When all the world is caving in around you and everything is confused and you're almost getting yourself killed, keep testifying to Jesus. So Paul raises his hand like any great preacher because that's how you're quiet. Every politician, every great order knows. So Paul stands up. He's in chains, stands up, and he speaks to them in their personal dialect. He speaks to them in Aramaic, which was their heart language. Guess what he did? He gave his testimony. 
And what he said, they said, you know what? I really understand this crowd. You can read it. The essence of what he says, I understand this crowd. I used to be one of you. He says, I have blue blood credentials. I'm a Hellenist. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. It's a very prominent Roman city. So I have great Roman credentials. But I also have blue blood Jewish credentials. I was raised in this city. Ask any one of the Sanhedrin. I was raised. I studied under the leading rabbi of the first century, Gamaliel. And if you think you're zealous, I killed those that believed in Jesus of Nazareth. I threw men and women in prison. In fact, the Jewish Sanhedrin gave me letters, and I went to Damascus because I wanted to take the terrorism, and he didn't call it terrorism, but I want to take my religious zealotry, and I want to wipe them out. This is where it gets personal. Like, how do you feel about Muslims today? Like, I have Muslim friends that don't know Jesus. I've had them lecture in my class. Like, right after the terrible incident down in Fort Hood, and my young Muslim friend started like this with my class. I'm an American. I love my country. How do you think I feel when I walk in this classroom and every one of you feel that I'm like the major down in Fort Hood that shot those people. And because I'm Muslim, I become the enemy. How do you feel about Muslims? What are you listening to? You think it's really true that all the Muslims in the world want to blow you up? Do you realize that some of our people in our church work for Muslims and they're trying to help them to understand that they don't have to become culturally Bible church or Baptist or Methodist, but they do need to really consider who Jesus is. Do you know how hard it is to try to get through to someone about who Jesus is when the people that say they believe in Jesus are saying one evil thing against the Muslims and against their culture? You see, that's where the rubber really meets the road. And I want you to know as a pastor teacher, I could really womp you up about how dangerous Islam is and how it's going to take over the United States of America. And if you don't give a lot of money and if you don't listen to what I'm telling you, this country is going to hell in a handbasket and you're all going to be under Muslim rule. And man, you'll respond to me. But it's not going to be the book of Acts. And we don't have a ghost of a chance of helping Muslim people around the world. One of the great big curtains against Jesus. We don't have a ghost of a chance. As a church family, I want you to know, you have paid for our young men to be in Muslim countries, to try to live the love of Jesus, to try to teach them to have good water and to help them to have good education. When you read about Mahala, this precious Pakistani girl that risked her life just to be able to read, that's a good thing. Do you pray? I hope she'll come to know the Messiah. Help her to know who the Quran says is the only prophet. Even the Quran says Jesus is the ultimate prophet that can bring salvation. That's why what I'm teaching you is so important. And as we move into the future as a church family, you as a congregation need to ask yourself, what am I really going to respond to? Will I really read through the Bible carefully? That's where the rubber meets the road. This is the, the heartbeat of it all, brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul comes to the crisis of his message. He says, I went to Damascus because I was 
wanting to kill all these followers of this heresy called the worship of Jesus of Nazareth. I hated it. And suddenly, a great light appeared to me. What do you believe about that light? This is what you need to be willing to live and die for. Paul says, I saw a great light that day. It drove me to my knees. And then I heard a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, Lord, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. And Saul, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. And Paul, when he testifies to the mob, doesn't tell that the Lord commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. He lets it build. He lets Ananias, a devout Jew, come. He lets himself be baptized. And the idea of watching your sins away is why you need to track this story. Because in the book of Acts, baptism, what you believe in your heart, and your external actions all go together. Paul isn't saying what you were taught in some of your background, that everybody needs to be baptized to have their sins washed away. You need to read it in the context. You're going to have lots of stories where people don't receive salvation because they're baptized. Baptism is just the reality. It expresses the conviction of your heart. You do with your body what you believe in your heart. That's what the thrust of the book of Acts is. Don't turn it into a religious tradition. That's how I want you to track the story. But Paul says... I met the risen Savior that day. And then he says, I came to Jerusalem. His message closes. says, I came to Jerusalem. I was right here in this city, right here in this temple. And the risen Christ talked to me again. He said, Paul, you need to get out of here because they're not going to receive your message. And I want you to go to the Gentiles. And as soon as he mentioned Gentiles, the crowd exploded. And Paul had to be taken to the Roman barracks and protected. Why did the Jewish mob explode when they heard Gentiles? Because that's how far they had gotten away from the passion of the Father's heart. You see, when God called Abraham, he said, I want you to be a blessing to the nations. The reason I'm calling you is I want you to become a blessing to the nations. And 2,000 years later, when Paul was in that temple, those same Jewish sons of Abraham, if you mention the nations, they were gone. They exploded in anger because they'd become exclusive. They had become protecting their own group, their own nationalities. I want to close by reminding you something. You know what? The Jews did give in to nationalism. The Jews did get really angry about their traditions. In 67 AD, they thought Paul was one of the Sicarii, but he wasn't. But in 67 AD, the dagger group, the zealots of Judaism, got control of all the Jews, and they got thousands upon thousands of Jews in the name of Israel, in the name of the temple, they attacked. So what the mob believed that day, you can look at what happened in history. The mob that believed in nationalism, they're going to save their country. They're going to save their religion. They all rose up to do it. They used daggers and crossbows and javelins, and Titus landed in Caesarea. The legions of Rome conquered northern Galilee, and they surrounded Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, they totally destroyed the temple. The temple caught fire. All the gold melted down into the stones, and the Roman legionaries wanted to get that gold, so they toppled every stone, just the way Jesus said.
They lined the streets going out of Jerusalem with thousands upon thousands of Jews on crosses. And the Jews were scattered all over the world. Brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you is really true. You're going to decide. Are my ultimate allegiances to the crucified Jesus of Nazareth who rose again from the dead and is at the right hand of God? If you believe that today, you won't be afraid. You'll have control of your anger and you won't believe in rumors because you'll love the truth. I love you. This is what the book of Acts is really saying. This isn't just pretend. People live and die, and those that joined this humble, powerful man called Paul, do you believe he saw Jesus at the right hand of God? Do you believe he saw the one with nail prints in his hand? And will you give all your life to reach across races, to reach across religions, to create an atmosphere where it's welcome, or will you be fueled by rumors and anger that can lead to mob violence? we got to decide.